And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hello, my name is Tyler Sick. I'm an assistant professor of politics at the University of Pikeville and the author of an article recently published in Persuasion called The Methods of Moynihan. My article takes a deep dive into the political thought of former United States Senator and social critic Daniel Patrick Moynihan. For most of his career, Senator Moynihan was famous for his forceful and seemingly contradictory political positions. He was at once critical of detente and President Reagan's bellicose foreign policy, an advocate of welfare reform who despised Newt Gingrich's contract with America, a firm believer in equality of outcome who thought the great society to be a tremendous failure. However, in seeing simply the contradictions of Moynihan, one misses the defining characteristics of his entire career. He perfectly blended the very best of conservatism and liberalism. By this, I do not mean that some days he acted like a Republican and other days he acted like a Democrat. Moynihan's conservative liberalism went much deeper than this, fusing together a conservative disposition and a liberal political vision. That is to say that he possessed both a serious appreciation of culture, prudence, and tradition, but in equal measure, hope that the government can be used to alleviate the very worst of humanity's sufferings. This unique combination of philosophic beliefs allowed Moynihan to see the problems of the 20th century differently, and he in turn better understood how to solve them. And I hope you take a look at my article so you can see his brilliance for yourself. Jeffrey Tyler's sixth piece called The Methods of Moynihan was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Tomiwa Awolade. Tom is a young freelance writer in the United Kingdom who's written for Unheard, The Times, The Observer, and he is the author of a new book which actually originated as an article in Persuasion. It is called, This is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter. We had a really interesting conversation about the differences between the role of race and racial discourse in America and in Britain. We debated whether class beats race in the United Kingdom and race beats class in the United States. We thought about what America can learn from the way that people think about race in Britain and vice versa. And we discussed what it means to be an anti-racist in a hopeful, optimistic, meaningful way that does not fall into cliches or ideology. Tom Ovaladen, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. So your new book, which is based on an article you originally wrote in Persuasion, is called This is Not America. What do people get wrong when they see the whole world through the lens of America's very particular racial history and racial discourse? And what do even people within Britain get wrong about their own country when they import America's racial discourse to the United Kingdom? They lose sight of the particular racial dynamics of their own country. I think that's what people get wrong if they look at their own country principally 
or even partly through an American perspective. In the case of the UK, what they get wrong or what they lose sight of is the fact that the black British population is distinctive from the black American population. So the black British population, in contrast to the black American population, is very much an immigrant community, or I should say communities, which is something that I emphasize in my book. So rather than looking at the black British population as a singular group or a singular identity, what I try to emphasize in my book and much of my writing is the diversity of that label itself. But I would say that it's principally an immigrant identity. And this is in stark contrast to the Black American population. So the overwhelming majority of Black Americans can trace their ancestry to enslaved Africans that were transported to the New World between the 17th and the 19th centuries. Whereas in the UK, the overwhelming majority as of today of Black British people are either immigrants from Africa or the children of immigrants from Africa. Up until 25 or 30 years ago, the majority of Black British people were Black Caribbeans. So people from countries like Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, and other Caribbean islands. But there's been a massive influx of immigration to the UK over the past 25, 30 years ago, which has completely changed the demographic makeup of the Black British population. So as of today, there are twice as many Black African people as they are Black Caribbean people. And I don't think many people know this, even people living in the UK. That's really interesting. I mean, Black Americans are as American as it gets in the sense that on average, they have ancestors who've been in the country for longer than white Americans, for example. How does it change the dynamic when a large portion of Black people in the UK are relatively recent immigrants or the descendants of relatively recent immigrants. I mean, in a way that displaces the question to a broader debate that we're having in the West about immigration. In my last book, The Great Experiment, I've been arguing that we're overly pessimistic about the socioeconomic progress of immigrants, both on the right and on the left, where on the right, sometimes people like to imply or say outright that, you know, these immigrants are not going to succeed because they somehow come from the wrong kinds of places, from culturally inferior stock, or in some more extreme cases, even that they're somehow genetically inferior. And the left disagrees with that strongly, but likes to emphasize the racism and the injustices that immigrants face and ends up coming to a similarly pessimistic conclusion where they end up thinking, look, they can't succeed because of how terribly unjust our societies are. And I argue in the last book that actually, especially when you distinguish between different generations, when you recognize that it often takes a while to rise within the society into which you immigrate, but it's not the first generation that arrives, perhaps in their 20s, that in some cases may not have access to excellent education, the country where we're from and so on, but may not speak English very well, but they might never quite succeed to average level in the society, but that kids and the grandkids often do much, much better. My understanding is that at least for the growing immigration groups of Black people in the United Kingdom, for example, British Nigerians, which I understand is your heritage as well, that argument applies, right? They're actually very successful and in some cases may even out-earn white British people at this point. Yeah, in terms of educational outcomes, for example, Black African students do outperform 
white British students as of today, and this is true of other immigrant communities as well. So British Chinese students, British Indian students outperform white British students in terms of educational outcomes. And this is true of the US, I know, of course, as well. But what I find striking is that whilst Black African students do well in education, Black Caribbean boys in particular tend to do less well. And what I argue in the book is that if we genuinely care about the inequalities in our society, we need to be sensitive to the fact that not all Black people are the same, which sounds like a very banal and obvious point to make. But I think the problem with a lot of anti-racist activism today is that many well-meaning progressive and liberal people tend to homogenize Black people. They talk of Black people in general terms rather than being specific in their focus. So, for example, the experiences of Black Caribbean boys is very different to the experiences of Black West African girls in schools. The experiences of Black Caribbean men, likewise, is very different to the experiences of Black West African women, especially if they're educated women in particular. The experiences of refugees to the UK from Somalia or Congo is likewise very different to the experiences of economic migrants that came from Ghana and Nigeria. And I think if we genuinely care about the inequalities in our society, we need to be mindful of these differences because as a result of that, we can therefore have a more targeted approach to tackling any form of discrimination, any form of poverty, anything that hinders the flourishing of any particular community. But we need to be yeah, mindful of those differences. And I think we also need to be mindful of those differences as well, because even though anti-racism needs to take into account racial and ethnic differences, I think that to entirely define an individual simply in terms of their race or their ethnicity denigrates the humanity of that individual. And I think in order to affirm the irreducible dignity of each individual, we need to resist the temptation of defining that individual entirely through their race or ethnicity. One of the things that I find striking about this in the US context, and I'm thinking through how that then is imposed on the UK as well, is that there's a temptation to describe the challenges facing all Black people in the United States as being the same. That the idea is that there's this sort of weird substratum of racism, which is sometimes clear and visible, and there are obviously examples of that, but often sort of invisible and hidden in ways that are so pervasive that we can't really see it. And those supposedly then uh, hold back all Black people. And, you know, even within the United States, that just doesn't seem to be a very convincing image of what's actually happening, because in the US too, Nigerian-Americans, Kenyan-Americans, other groups of African immigrants are doing extremely well. And the reason for that seems to me to be relatively straightforward. Why do Indian Americans do very well? Why do Nigerian Americans do very well? It's the same reason, which is that a large percentage of them came here on H-1B visas, which is to say on visas you know, reserved for highly qualified immigrants. And then they also sponsored a lot of their family members. But you know, by and large, the brother of an engineer is going to be a doctor or lawyer or something, right? Rather than somebody who didn't have any educational opportunities and so on. And so 
you know, the reasons why these groups are very successful is in good part because they came from a relatively elite group within their own society. And then they do, in fact, succeed quite well. So the problem that exists in the United States is one that you would think those sort of more progressive writers or those quote-unquote woke writers would want to embrace, which is one of historical injustice, right? The reason why the descendants of enslaved people don't succeed as well on average as relatively recent immigrants from Nigeria and elsewhere is in good part because they have suffered hundreds of years of discrimination and I mean, the most extreme form of chattel slavery and so on in a way that these immigrants have not. And you would think that that is a point that progressives would be happy to take on board and to emphasize. But there's some kind of strange drive to describe the situation in maximally negative terms that stops them from embracing what actually is a logical inference from the rightful emphasis on historical justice and its longstanding facts. Yeah, exactly. So I think the problem with many of these progressives is that they treat race and therefore racism as this almost metaphysical category. They treat it as something which is unchanging, a force that essentially transcends circumstances and context so that they don't modify the understanding of race to take into account the fact that some Black communities are rich, some Black communities are conservative, some Black communities um, have different religious views and opinions. They simply look at it through this unchanging, metaphysical, essentialist concept of race. And I think this is a problem for many reasons. One of the reasons why I think it's a massive problem, especially if you define yourself as a progressive, is that it leads you to a very fatalistic position. It leads you to um, a position in which you have to conclude that there isn't any point in trying to change or trying to reform or trying to transform society if race and racism is this permanent, this metaphysical category, this force which transcends circumstance, which transcends context. If that's genuinely the case, then what would be the point of being an anti-racist activist in the very first place? If there is no optimistic dimension to your activism, then what's the point of it? And that, of course, is a danger that activism can fall into in all kinds of different contexts. Somehow what you were saying reminded me of Mark Linus, who's a longstanding environmentalist activist who has had an interesting journey from an anti-GMO activist burning down crops to arguing for the importance of GMO and some technological solutions within climate change. He's been on the podcast in the past. And what he does is he speaks to audiences and says, you know, if a fairy turned up and said, you know, we have one wish and we could wish for the problem of climate change to be solved tomorrow. Would you go for that or would you not go for that? And he says that often when he speaks to environmentalist audiences, a huge majority of people say that we don't want to go for that because they don't think that the necessary broader changes in society would come hand in hand with that. They see the fight for fixing climate change in part as a fight to get over capitalism and return to a society that sins against nature less in all kinds of ways and so on. And Mark thinks that's kind of offensive because I actually believe that climate change is a big problem. And so if we had a way of fixing it, we should want to fix it. There's something really profoundly wrong if you claim to care about this, but you wouldn't want to fix it in that kind of circumstance. And I think there's a kind of weird parallel here, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's true. 
And I also think another major difference between the UK and the US is that in terms of things like school and also many other social institutions, in many cases in the US, the main dividing line is race, whereas in the UK, it's class. So, for example, I have a brother that lives in America and was recently married to a black American woman. And the wedding was last December and she invited over 70 guests to Nigeria for the wedding. And I was struck by this, but then I remembered that in the United States, if you're a black person, it's much easier to have an entirely black social circle, especially if you're a black person living in the South, partly due to segregation, the legacy of segregation, and also partly because there are so many American cities across the South where the majority of the population is black. Whereas in the UK, the city with the largest share of black people is London. And the percentage of black people in London is something like 13 or 14 percent. And the major dividing lines is class for another reason, which is that for my own experience of going to a state secondary school, a comprehensive school in London, one thing I found was that the white working class kids in my school were friendly with many ethnic minority kids. And also the white middle class kids in my school were also friendly with many ethnic minority kids. But the white middle class kids and the white working class kids never really interacted with each other. So even in my state comprehensive school, the kids segregated themselves on the basis of class rather than race. And I think that's indicative of a wider problem in the UK, which is that class is still one of the main social dividing lines. So I think that the experiences of, say, a privately educated Black African man that works as a banker or a lawyer or a doctor is extremely different to, say, a Black Caribbean man that went to a state school and now works in a working class job. And I think we need to be more mindful of these differences rather than just saying that on the basis of the fact that they're both Black, they necessarily share the same experiences. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. I mean, one way of turning this into a slogan is that in America, race beats class, and in Britain, class beats race. I think it's obviously a little bit more complicated than that, but is something true to that slogan, without a doubt? I mean, it, it certainly does pick up, even if it's not literally true, an important difference between the United States and Britain. So I guess what I'm puzzling through is two things. One, it sort of allows for a different form of integration within the UK, as you were implying, right? I mean, often the more working class British person who comes from the Caribbean, for example, might integrate with more working class Londoners. And there's a lot of intermarriage actually between working class Londoners and descendants of immigration from Jamaica and so on. And that's made it a little bit easier by, you know, a certain kind of mutual antipathy towards a snooty middle or upper class and so on that is part of British working class culture in a kind of multiracial way. Exactly. And also in particular, the Irish working class in the decades after the Second World War, many of the Irish working class intermarried with or were friendly in, in any other way with the Black Caribbean working class. 
And I think a part of that was definitely the fact that Irish people have been oppressed by the British. The Irish were a colonized people. Um, so they do share that affinity with Black Caribbean people. And I think it's also worth mentioning that as well, because when you look at the typical Irish person, you say, oh, well, that's a white person. And I think the fact that Irish people have been oppressed illustrates that when we think about race, it's not just a black and white or a white and people of color, quotation marks, binary. It's more nuanced and it's more complicated than that. Because when I was growing up as a teenager, there was this fashionable belief that I encountered, which is that you can only be a victim of racism if you are a black or brown person. If you are racialized as white, you can't be a victim of racism. You can be a victim of prejudice, but if you are white, you can't be a victim of racism because the society that we live in privileges white people. And I soon realized that this was completely nonsensical for a few reasons because many groups that are racialized as white still encounter racism because racists think of them as inferior. So anti-Irish racism, the, the most obvious example is anti-Semitism, which I've written about recently. And there was a Labour MP that, <laughs> do you want to go into that now? Did that and I think? You're basically baiting me to ask a question that I was going to ask in any case, which is that you found yourself at the center or perhaps a little bit off center to a major political controversy in Britain because you wrote, as I understand it, an article in The Guardian or The Observer, which is the Sunday newspaper of The Guardian, about a study showing persistent racism in the United Kingdom against, of course, Black people and against immigrants from the Indian subcontinent and elsewhere, but also against Jews, against traveler people and against Irish people. And Diane Abbott, a far-left labor politician who was one of the closest allies of Jeremy Corbyn, famously took a bicycling holiday in East Germany with Jeremy Corbyn back in the years when I believe they were dating, or perhaps it was briefly before or after they were dating, but they did date at some point, wrote a letter responding to this that utterly denied the possibility of genuine racism against Jews or against traveler people and against other groups. And Keir Starmer, Jeremy Corbyn's successor as the leader of the Labour Party, I believe removed the whip from her, which is to say that she can no longer sit as a part of the Labour parliamentary group in the House of Commons. It, it occurs to me as I'm talking through these facts that explaining British politics even to people, my audience, I think, is a very well-informed audience, but even to people who are pretty well-informed about the world and pretty well-informed about Britain is, is not a trivial task, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I guess I have two questions. I mean, first, you know, what's your response to a substantive question? Why do you think that Diane Abbott was wrong about this? I'm going to have a follow-up question. Okay, sure. I think the reason why she was wrong about this is that anti-Semites themselves see Jewish people as an inferior race. So some people, and some people say this after that, anti-Semitism isn't a form of racism. It's a form of religious prejudice. And I think this is wrong because even atheist people can obviously be victims of anti-Semitism. So anti-Semites themselves see Jewish people as an inferior race, essentially. And this is also true of racism against other ethnic minority groups that are often 
racializes whites. And this seems like it's the core thesis of your book in a way, right? Because this is precisely where, you know, within the American context, the most salient racial distinction has been white versus non-white. In America, too, that has never been the only racial distinction, but it has been the most important. So it's easy to see the world just through that lens. But to then try to apply that to something like the Third Reich, where the Nazis, in an extremely explicit way, passed the Nuremberg race laws, saying Jews, as well as other kinds of groups, were an inferior race, is making exactly the mistake that you worry about in your book. And the same mistake when you know certain newspaper headlines in the United States talk about Han supremacy within China, the discrimination against ethnic minority groups within China. And they say white supremacy in China, right? Because by definition, if Hans are discriminating against minorities, they must somehow by alchemy become white, right? I mean, it all seems like it's part of that same basic conceptual cognitive mistake. Yeah, exactly. And when Diane Abbott wrote that letter in response to my column, she used as an example of the fact that Jewish people can't be victims of racism, Jim Crow America. So she said that, Jewish people were not told to sit at the back of the bus during um, Jim Crow America. Historically as well, that's also slightly wrong because some Jewish people, I believe, were actually lynched as well in the South. But that's a separate thing to say. I think what I found striking about what Diane Abbott said is that she basically took to the logical conclusion a kind of assumption that's been internalized by a lot of the progressive anti-racist left, which is to exactly to see race and racism in this purely binary way as white and non-white. And I think another problem with seeing racism in that way is that it also presupposes that there is this coherent category called white people as well, that white people in the United States of America share the same level of privilege as white people, say, in Eastern Europe or in Southern Europe, in countries that have a completely different set of historical narratives and circumstances and cultures and demographics. And to look at the world in that way is, I think, illustrative of a lack of curiosity and also illustrative of a kind of dogmatism, which I think that any inquisitive and curious person should always try to resist. What was it like to be dragged into this major political story? I mean, Diane Abbott's suspension from the Labour Party ended up being, you know, front page news on that day. I mean, it was the leading story for, you know, 24, 48 hours. And you were this sort of inadvertent cause of it in a sort of strange roundabout way. I assume it helped your book sales, but it probably also got some people to be nasty towards you. Walk me briefly that experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some people were nasty towards me, but I sort of brushed that aside because if you are a writer that writes about sensitive, contentious, potentially divisive issues, then people being nasty to you, unfortunately, is part of the job. So I, yeah, I just brushed that aside. And yeah, I guess what I think, if there is any positive to be taken from this rather sad and slightly tawdry issue is, is it brings light to 
what I tried to argue in my initial column, which is that we need to be more multidimensional, more nuanced and more sophisticated in our approach to racism and racial discrimination. And I think Diane Abbott's letter to my column illustrates why that's an important thing to be because I know you've got mostly American listeners, but Diane Abbott is seen as an icon of the far left. And she's seen as well as a kind of pioneer as well. So she was the very first black female member of parliament. And she's been a member of parliament for 36 years as well. So she's very much part of the left-wing establishment in the UK. So for her to express such a patently absurd and also strange view to say that Jewish people and other minority groups, often racialized as white, can't be victims of racism, illustrates just how pervasive and how far that kind of thinking has got to many people on the left. I want to return to a very different strand of a conversation. A while ago, you were suggesting that a lot of the more recent immigrants, especially from countries in in East Africa, West Africa, are doing much better than immigrants from the Caribbean, for example. Why is that? What is the difference in either origin or in timing that helps to explain those different socioeconomic outcomes? Is it that Similarly to the United States, the group of people who's coming in from Kenya, Nigeria, etc., is more selected in terms of how hard it is to get a visa from those countries? Or is part of it about the timing where perhaps, you know, the structural obstacles that made it hard for people to succeed 40 or 50 years ago when a lot of the Caribbean immigrants came to the country were just actually much worse than they are today, which would actually be a kind of success story. Yeah, I think the timing is definitely a big part of it because when Caribbean people came to the UK in the decades after the Second World War, they encountered so much racism from the British education establishment. Many British Caribbean pupils were unfairly consigned to special educational schools, for example. And I think that that particular experience definitely sold a level of distrust towards the British establishment. Whereas West African communities that came to the UK over the past 20, 30 years have encountered a very different UK to the UK of the 50s and 60s. And therefore, I do think that there is a greater degree of optimism amongst many Black British African communities. And I think the reason why there is that difference between these two large groups is the fact that many Black African people that came over the past 25-30 years were already educated or came specifically to be educated, whereas many Black Caribbean people, when they arrived, arrived as working class labourers trying to fill in work shortages in like the sort of British healthcare and transport and other industries. But I should also say, even though I'm speaking in generalities, there are many Black African students and people that do struggle. And there are also many Black Caribbean people that do extremely well. So I'm just speaking in generalities, of course. 
irrespective of that, there are still those significant differences. I think another difference worth mentioning is that Black Caribbean pupils in schools are three times more likely to be excluded from schools than Black African pupils. So that's another difference because many people say, oh, the um, British educational system is racist against people of colour or is racist against Black people, to which I would always respond, which Black people, which people of colour? Because the experiences of these communities, as I keep insisting upon, are not the same. And to make that generalisation is to lose sight of the actual communities that are actually struggling. And if we lose sight of that, then what can we base our anti-racism upon? So to invert the question, what is it that Britain can learn from America? So even though the book is entitled This Is Not America, I am also inspired by many Black American writers and thinkers and a couple immediately come to mind, James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. Both of them, I think, were not only great novelists, but also fantastic essayists as well. And what they often emphasized in many of their essays is that Black Americans are not only Black, but they are also fundamentally Americans as well. This was something that Baldwin found to his great surprise when he was living in Paris. He found that he had more in common with fellow white American people than he did with Black African or Arab Francophone people. And this point illustrated to him the fact that going out of America merely reinforced his underlying American identity. And this attachment between being Black and being American, I think, is crucial to any kind of anti-racism, because many racists would say that Black American people are Black before they are American, or that the two things are in some way in tension. But Baldwin and Ellison emphasise the fact that Black American people are Black and American, and the very reason why they deserve dignity and they deserve human flourishing is that they are American to the core. So American society has a duty to protect and to dignify Black people. And I would say that this is also true of Black British people. So Black British people are not only Black, but they are British as well. And because of that, we need to emphasize their Britishness because many racists, and this is even more true because Black British people often come from immigrant communities, many racists would say Black British people are not British. They are Black. They are Caribbean. They are African. But they are not British. And I think affirming their British identity is crucial to any kind of anti-racist activism because it is on the basis of that British identity that they have their dignity endowed to them.
I wonder whether you followed, I think in 2018, this strange controversy in the United States when Trevor Noah had a clip celebrating Africa's first win in the Football World Cup. It was, I believe, France won the World Cup. And, uh, you know, his joke was that most of the French players were Black and African in origin. And then the French ambassador to the United States at the time, Gérard Arrault, complained and said, this is the kind of discourse that the far right makes in France. These are not Africans, the French. I was wondering how you feel about it, because I think there was something, I'm Trevor Noah was, is a comedian making a joke, and I think perhaps I was sort of overreacted a little bit, and I can sort of see the... But at the same time, it also feels to me like I was making a fundamentally important point, but they are French people. So yeah, I was wondering how you felt about that. I think what's striking about that is that 20 years before that, so 20 years before 2018, France won the World Cup in 1990. And when that French team won the World Cup, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the leader of the Front National, complained about that French national team, 1998 French national team, because he said that that team wasn't French enough. That team was filled with Africans and Arabs and Black French people of West Indian descent. And so it's a strange irony that that very same argument describing ethnic minority people as fundamentally foreigners is shared by both the far right and also many people that would define themselves as proud anti-racists. Yeah, it's the lack of curiosity, which I think is quite striking about some parts of that movement. Um, the story of a friend of mine always comes to mind who was pitching a magazine on some important story, I think in Kenya. And the response from the editor was, you know, I'm sorry, we're not really that interested in those kinds of pieces these days. We really are trying to focus on racial justice. And so there's a strange idea that, you know, to talk about a very important African country that's going to play an increasingly big role in the world and that has a rapidly growing population and economy, that's somehow not important when it comes to, you know, those kinds of questions. One thing that's important is sort of, you know, black-white relations within the United States. I'm struck by the fact that you both criticize implicitly and explicitly some of the most famous spokesperson of quote-unquote anti-racism today. But you also have repeatedly described yourself as an anti-racist or talked about what it would require to truly be anti-racist. And I think that that is exactly right. I certainly disagree with some of the people whose books might come up if you put anti-racist into Amazon, but I certainly think of myself as one of my deep pieces of political identity as an anti-racist. So what would a healthy anti-racism look like, whether in Britain or the United States, an anti-racism that takes on board the differences between different places that's more curious about the world and about complexity that can help to make real progress towards racial equality, but without falling into those kinds of pitfalls. I think a healthy anti-racism would be something that, whilst on one side, acknowledges the fact that race can and is often used to divide groups of people and to oppress groups of people, we shouldn't fall into the temptation of thinking about race as something which absolutely and entirely 
defines the lives and the experiences of racialized people. So a healthy kind of anti-racism would also necessarily need to question any kind of race essentialism. It would need to question any kind of race generalization. And again, I think that this is something that works both ways. So I think a healthy kind of anti-racism would also need to resist the now fashionable temptation amongst many on the progressive left to stigmatize white people for two reasons. It's wrong, I think, on its own terms, but I also think it's not very effective. If you're trying to persuade a group of people to come on your side, trying stigmatizing them seems like an extremely counterproductive way. And I think it is a healthy kind of anti-racism would be one that is genuinely committed to viewing black people as a diverse group of people rather than as a homogenous block. As a healthy kind of anti-racism would affirm, as I said earlier in this conversation, the irreducible dignity of each individual irrespective of their race, their ethnicity, their religion, and any other form of cultural affinity that they might belong to. I'm very torn on this question. On the one hand, it feels to me that there is more and more friendship and communication and marriage between different demographic groups, that our culture is actually making real progress towards being more diverse, sometimes in sort of very self-conscious and slightly cringy ways, but often in ways that feel much more organic and that I think are really wonderful and laudable. And on the other hand, the political discourse can get torn into these sort of very simplistic camps, where on the one hand, you might have the sort of progressive left that you're talking about. And on the other hand, there can be an often really very knee-jerk reactionary right that interprets any kind of criticism about injustices or concern to make the world better as quote-unquote woke or whatever. So, you know, how optimistic are you and what can we do to become more optimistic about this or to warrant greater optimism about the future? Well, be the United States. I think a strange kind of paradox is going on, which is that as we make more progress on anti-racism, as we become more racially integrated societies, it seems that we become more sensitive to racism and we we become more animated against racism and we become more neurotic about racism. And I think this is, to a great extent, understandable because if you genuinely see yourself as a Black American or Black British person, and that's something that's utterly integral to your identity, those two things in combination, then it makes sense why any kind of racist slight or microaggression is especially painful to you because you are more invested in the community and culture. If you were entirely, say, somebody that was foreign to America or to Britain, then you could perhaps 
easily brush off any kind of racism because you're not invested deeply into the particular culture, into the particular society, whether that be America or Britain. So as black people or any other ethnic minority group becomes more and more integrated into each respect of society, then it makes sense why that greater sensitivity towards racism will come about. But what I would say to emphasize the importance of optimism, and I am quite an optimistic person on these issues, is I would say we need a historical perspective. We need to understand what it was actually like in the past. And we need to compare that to the present. So you mentioned the importance of comparative analysis earlier on in this conversation. Well, I would say we need to do that, but not between countries. We need to do that between the past and the present. That would illustrate the level of progress that we've made. And that would also, I think, lay the groundwork for a more optimistic future. Because if we've made that much progress from the past, we can continue to make progress to the future. Tomiwa Walade, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.